0: Welcome to First Responder Friday. My name's Conrad Weaver. I'm your host for the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we are going to be joined by a very special guest in just a few minutes, but first I wanna give you a little update as to where we are. We're in the process of producing a documentary film called PTSD 911. It's a story about first responders who are dealing with stress and the, the after effects of post-traumatic stress and things like that. And so it's a really exciting program. We're talking to people from all over the country and now even all over the world. In fact, this this past week, I talked to a lady from, from Dublin, Ireland, and I talked to a police officer from Toronto. And so people from all over the world are hearing about this. And so it's a worldwide issue with law enforcement and first responder communities of dealing with trauma. But today I have a very special guest. Sam Horowitz is living in Dallas and she is a former Secret Service agent. Sam, how did you become a Secret Service agent?
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, the uh, the short story that is, um, you know, not a lot of people know that the Secret Service went from the Treasury Department when I joined to the Department of Homeland Security where it exists now. And so after graduating from college and going on to law school, Uh, I made the decision after my first year of law school, I decided there is no way that I want to uh, practice law and I had the fortune of um, working at the U.S. Attorney's Office doing an internship and meeting federal agents from many different uh, agencies, working on a big drug case. And I said, you know what, let me ask some questions. Let me explore a little because this sounds like what I want to do. And uh, I knew I wanted to be in some type of investigations, not knowing that the Secret Service, you know, where everybody's used to those dark sunglasses and the dark suits protecting the president. If you're detailed outside of the Washington field office, you are in a criminal squad. So I was lucky enough to be uh, sent to new york i was in the new york field office assigned to the electronic crimes task force and then a funny thing happened because the uh, united nations is located in new york uh, we had a lot of cross responsibilities supporting uh, ppd the presidential protection division and vppd uh, I fell in love with the protection side. And that's what I did for the remainder of my career um, after the Secret Service transitioning, in, even into the local level.
0: You know, I didn't even know that it had transitioned from the Treasury to Homeland Security. That was, That's news to me. In fact, I live just outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, I actually have a friend that's, I think he's still in the Secret Service. He was in the Dog Handling Division, I guess. I'm not sure what division that is, but yeah, Yeah. the K-9 Division. uh, But I didn't know that they had transitioned to uh, Homeland Security, which makes sense in a way.
1: Well, I I mean, it really did uh, turn the agency on its head, if you will. After 9-11, a lot of uh, decisions were made out of the White House, and one of them was moving the Secret Service into and under that umbrella uh, of DHS. Uh, myself and other agents, you know, we have our own very specific, uh, basically what we do and our function and our role and uh, other agencies kind of got left alone. Um, and if you talk to some of the old timers like myself, uh, we definitely all would have agreed that we needed to stay where we were focused 100% uh, on our mission. And once that transition was made over to DHS, like I said, it turned field offices uh, upside down.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, the Secret Service t- it kind of has a reputation for being really serious about their job, and which they need to be. But I was uh, had the privilege of shooting video for uh, a security firm that got the contract for for George W. Bush's second inauguration. I had all access to the, the the Pennsylvania Avenue, the parade route, and all access to the presidential balls. And when I was there, I had this big production camera I was carrying around and, man, the Secret Service, they were all over me. They were like, who are you? And what are you doing? And, you know, All throughout the night, especially in the ballroom, you know, yep. where the president was in there. They were like eyeballing me because I wasn't up with the press corps. I was down doing some other things. And they were always asking me questions. Is that something that kind of per, kind of permeates the whole agencies that that seriousness like you know we are we're the tough guys and we're gonna make sure we do our job right
1: yeah it's instilled in us from day one and i i you know i joke that you're not gonna find a secret service agent with a great sense of humor <laughs> um it just is i've had to learn to kind of let that go because of the nature of our job i mean think about it uh protection at the highest level hmm. If you're not on 100%, somebody might not go home that day. And that is a big thing that weighs around us. That's why the training is so critical, crucial, and it's super specific. I like to tell audiences that I speak to, we are trained at the highest levels of law enforcement. That you can get, and that's you know, multidisciplinary, not only in investigations, but also in uh, weaponry that we use. And so, it definitely lends its I don't know if uh, I'll just say it. People think we have a gigantic ego, and part of that is you know, we take pride, we're very prideful, and that hey, we were selected because it's an invitation. Hmm. It's not, you go through a lot of things in the application process.
0: I know my friend who went through the application process, man, he was like, you know, it was like 80, 90 pages of stuff he had to go through. And he was at the time, he was dating a girl from Poland, which created some problems. Mm -hmm. They ended up getting married and she became an American citizen, but he was able to then get accepted into the Secret Service. But yeah, he said, yeah, wow, it was amazing. They talk to everybody everybody in your past, you
1: know? Yep. Yeah.
0: yeah. So uh, what, so you were in the New York field office, you were doing a variety of things there and then a big event happened.
1: Yeah, I was uh, going to work with thousands of others on a bright, sunny fall Tuesday and morning and all of a sudden got stuck in a weird traffic jam that would have never existed in that particular location uh, at that time of the morning. And it set events uh, into play that would forever change my life and really become a purpose and a passion of what I'm doing now. Uh, I was in Tower One on 9-11 when American Airlines Flight 11 struck it. And it's because of that training that I just spoke about where I was able You know, there was no, as we know from the PTS brain, we got fight, flight, or freeze. There definitely was no freeze. It was all immediately uh, recognizing that there was an emergency situation going on, grabbing as many people as I could, and going up an escalator and out an exit door that I had never used before. My intuition, my gut. Uh, just said, go that way, Sam, and that's exactly what I did, and ultimately where I ended up out on the plaza level, because I hit that door. Uh, it saved my, me and the, those that were with me from uh, having a lot of debris, concrete, metal, uh, pieces of people actually fall on us, and as you know, a firefighter was killed uh, when Unfortunately, he was struck and and killed when um, one of the jumpers landed on him. So it was it was a uh, there was no fear. Hmm. And I say that not boastfully, but again, because being trained at the level that I was imagine because you don't get this in the police academies. You're training protecting movements while the instructors are creating explosions, creating diversions, if you will. And you need to tactically move through uh, that kind of scenario. And 9-11 was that. Hmm.
0: So going back to your experience in the Secret Service pre-9-11, what was and, and when you first applied and got into, what was the biggest thing that surprised you? Just about um, the whole scene wow. and about the whole experience.
1: Yeah, wow, that's a great question. Um, I'll I'll say, and this is going to sound really strange, showing up for work and not having a workstation to work from. Uh, we coming out of our class, we kind of descended on the New York field office, which has a lot of prestige. Uh, in the Secret Service. It's uh, the second largest office outside of DC, everybody, you know, being in headquarters, being the largest. And yeah, we showed up and here we are we're like, um, supervisors, any desks? No. Any pens? No. <laughs> nothing. We had nothing. So for an agency that that practiced preparedness and we, you know, we what if scenarios, that was kind of weird. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, wow. so you were in Tower One. You came out the one door that you'd never gone. I mean, what happened after that when you left the building with the people that you had gathered?
1: Well, we were immediately kind of stopped in our tracks, taking in what was going on around us, which was that gigantic debris field that was just raining down uh, from tower one. Now I had no idea a plane had hit it. I thought it was some sort of explosion, Uh, but with this massive debris field, the last thing you wanted to have happen was to get caught out in the open with that. And uh, so we ended up under building six, Mm. which had this amazing overhang. It was one of the oldest buildings in the World Trade Center complex. Uh, For your listeners, there were seven buildings that made up the World Trade Center complex. And my building was seven, the last one to come down that day. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to skirt around six World Trade and stay under that overhang until I got to a corner and I could look across pedestrian walkway and see not only my squad mates, but one of my supervisors standing in the lobby of our building. Our building had glass, uh, um, big glass um, doors and windows and everything. So you could see right in. And she was telling me, she was doing this. And I could tell by her motion of her lips, she was saying, come on, Sam, run. Hmm. Now, at this point, I'm being shielded. And the people that were with me were all being shielded by all this debris coming down. And I stopped and I thought, well, you know, do I want to take that step out? Hmm. And then I'll say my logical part of my brain took over and it was like, well, Sam, your supervisor, you know, she's not going to draw you out into a situation that's going to get you killed. She had a different perspective than I did. She could see what was going on behind me. And she had my back. We like in law enforcement, she had my six, that's what we say. And uh, I took off running with one person in tow that stayed with me. She broke away from me, went down a set of uh, steps to get off the plaza. I continued my run into seven world trade, again, my building where I went to work. And now I'm amongst my squad mates. We're looking at each other. We're wondering what in the world had just happened. My supervisor's making sure everything's okay. And we all thought that the, the, the proverbial dust will, would settle if you would. And we'd all be back up at our desks investigating what this explosion was. And while we're standing in the lobby of our building, tower two gets hit. Hmm. And that's when we all go into this mode of, okay, we're the third tallest building in the World Trade Center complex, we're next. This is a coordinated bombing attack. Again, no idea that terrorists were piloting planes into the World Trade Center.
0: Hmm. Wow, so in the aftermath, You, uh, how long were you in the Secret Service then following that?
1: Oh, wow. I got out. I resigned my position, which was a very, very, extremely difficult decision to make uh, following May of 2002 because of post traumatic stress symptoms that I was experiencing. Um, It made it, I won't say impossible to do my job, but as I mentioned, before, if you're not a hundred percent, and that means somebody might not go home that day. And I did not want to have that, uh, on my shoulders. You know, that was a stressor that just played in the back of my mind as well as the stressor of, I could have done more. I, I could have saved more people. Um, logically knowing that, you know, once those towers came down, there was nobody that could be saved coming out. And Mm -hmm. I know this for a fact, because we tried, Mm -hmm. we were there, we evacuated a school that we thought we'd set up as a, as a triage area to bring people, uh, to, and it just, just didn't happen.
0: Mm -hmm. And how long did it take for those, those post-traumatic stress symptoms to start showing up in you?
1: That night, now I didn't, I didn't know what they were, mind mm-hmm. you. Uh, we got maybe a thirty-minute block on, hey, uh, you know, this job is stressful. You're going to see things and do things um, that might affect your sleep. Very much downplayed, mm-hmm. and I got to my apartment around five thirty uh, that evening, and I went, you know, covered in in the dust, and I went to. Do what everybody else did on that day uh, was to, you know, get out of my clothes and get in the shower, get cleaned up. And I noticed that when I would close my bathroom door—this is my bathroom—I'm in my apartment, which you know, safe place. My heart would start racing. I'd start sweating, and I'm like, "What is this?" And I'd open my door uh, to the bathroom, kind of get some fresh air, take a deep breath. And the symptomology would abate. Mm -hmm. And so I repeated the process again, closed my door, same thing. And I thought, wow, this is strange. Didn't know what to make of it. Had just been through a pretty traumatic event. Mm -hmm. And I tried to ignore it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until my husband made it up from Maryland that evening that I was able to actually get cleaned up. It was that dramatic. And then that evening started the nightmares, um, the hypervigilance, so that startle response off the charts, always feeling like I needed to be armed. And hypervigilance is something that is trained into all law enforcement. And when you go through a traumatic event like 9-11, it is heightened so that responding what a normal person would say, why why are you doing that? Why are you crouching down when you hear a dumpster truck just emptying the trash, right? That was was my startle response. It was get low and I'd immediately go for my gun. Well, you can't operate (laughs) in normal society. And I can laugh about it now because I've talked about it to so many groups for so many years now and I kind of paint this picture and they laugh with me too so it's it's great you know here's this amazingly trained human being reduced to responding abnormally when a dumpster truck is just doing what dumpster trucks do.
0: Wow so hot so coming out of the gate like that with that that very first day, I mean, how did those things progress? Did, did it get worse? Did it, you know, did it start to ease off? What happened over the next few months?
1: Oh, it got a lot worse. So, uh, you know, for first responders that are exposed to a traumatic event, um, it, it is a perfectly normal, let me say that again, it's perfectly normal to have some sort of stress response, whether it's interrupted sleep, uh, nightmares the hypervigilance the, 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 your your again that startle refle- uh, reflex being heightened but over time that dissipates okay think of it as our neurological system our the, the wiring in our brain kind of reestablishing those neural neurosynapses so that we can go on about our day in a normal fashion and what was happening to me Was all of those symptoms that I just mentioned got jacked up really bad. And I learned to use alcohol to self medicate, to bring everything down, to numb myself out. Hmm. Basically, it helped me sleep, even though, you know, with alcohol, you know, you get to a point where it absolutely, because science will tell you, interrupts that very important sleep pattern. Uh, but if I could get three, four, five hours of sleep without nightmares waking me up, I I was gonna take it. And um nobody wanted to talk about the elephant in the room. We were all suffering. And our entire field office went through this, everybody that was there, and then we had no field office. Gone. Wow. So here we are, you know, the second largest field office in the Secret Service and we're spread out all over New York City. Nobody has a quote-unquote home, a uh, safe place to go to every day. Mm-hmm. And that through the the feeling of not really having control Over what was going on again, that that lack of being in a safe place, you know, is the space that we're renting above a BMW car dealership. No joke. (laughs) Didn't have doors either. Not kidding. No doors. Secret service working in an office with no doors. (laughs) Another thing. Uh, Just just craziness. And if I felt that there was no foothold that I could get to stop myself to kind of have time to reflect and put names to what was going on. And I and, uh, liken it to if you know you're, you hike in Colorado or you've been hiking anywhere where you get onto that loose gravel mm-hmm. and you can't really get a foothold to continue your uh, you know, ascent. That's what it felt like. There was no step that I could take that felt solid for me. And this is, we had one debriefing, one. And and the biggest thing is after a traumatic event, what happens in law enforcement, we have this crisis response team or this this debriefing and we're all together and we're encouraged to talk about what we experienced, but we don't want to look weak or strange. So we tell the, the folks leading it um, and it's gotten much better now because they're being led by actual like people in law enforcement versus what what we had and you don't want to say now I could barely get the words out um, the, my emotions just took over uh, and so we had the one debriefing and then that was it hmm. and I had asked They handed out their cards and they said, hey, if you need assistance, we're here. Okay, if you need assistance, we're here. Those are the last words that we heard. Kind of comforting until you make that call and you realize, well, you're not actually there. Mm -hmm. And after the second time uh, connecting the dots, really like I'm on my own here. I don't know how to explain what's going on. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's getting sleep. We're all drinking, not to excess where we can't do our jobs effectively. Just want to put that on record. Uh, But without feeling like we could open up and talk, that really made things a lot worse. And it was not only myself, but it was eight other agents in one month we made the tough decision to resign as agents and i mean it is something that's unheard of i mean mm-hmm. we you go into the secret service for for life mm-hmm. there's not a lot of people that use the secret service as a stepping stone to do something else it's just unheard of mm-hmm. that's like we landed in the highest echelon of law enforcement and this is where this is where we're gonna stay see see our missions through. Mm-hmm. And because of the mass exodus, it threw our leadership into a chaos, if you will. DC didn't know what to do other than to transfer people left and right. And it it, it was a it was a big mess. Mm-hmm. And I went on afterwards thinking that I moved from New Jersey where I was living to Maryland with my husband thinking, all right, now I'm in a stable place. Mm -hmm. But without getting stability up here, Mm -hmm. the PTS symptoms just got worse and worse and worse. And then one evening, it was New Year's Eve, I called it quits. I'm like, I cannot live like this anymore anymore. Nobody can understand what I'm going through. And I completely self-isolated and thought, no, I don't want to exist like this. And so I found myself in my basement with a whole ton of alcohol and uh, was ready to take my own life.
0: Mm. Wow. So you went, so just, just, just on the timeline, it's, it was, this happened in September, obviously. Mm-hmm. By May, you were out of the Secret Service.
1: Yeah, it was the end of May. Yes.
0: So eight months later, that that fast, uh, and he said eight others or, or eight total from that that agency.
1: Eight office. others and myself to make yeah.
0: nine. Wow. Yes. so, obviously, this is a, an event that impacted everyone. Uh, I mean, I was living in Colorado at the time, and you know, I couldn't get my eyes off the TV and stop crying, you know, for days. But I can't imagine being there. And seeing that and experiencing what you went through. I mean, it, it, and then, but all the training you got, you said you had a 30 minute thing that said, you know, oh, by the way, you may see some stuff. Right. That, that <laughs> I mean, nobody ludicrous, really. You well, know. No, yeah, nobody could have,
1: in, unless you have some, you know, crystal ball uh where i'm sure people will say yes you know 911 was an event that was predicted to happen we just didn't have the timeline knowing what happened in 19 uh 93 the bombing mm,
0: right. same
1: same parties involved yeah uh just different um modality
0: yeah but so has anything to your knowledge has anything changed there in the secret service to provide more you know mental health training for agents and people there
1: no and the reason I can emphatically say no is that I just talked to an agent who retired not too long ago, uh, small world just so happens that he now lives less than 10 minutes from me. And he's a really great friend. And I asked him that question. He got to the senior uh, leadership level in the service. And I, and I asked him straight out, did anything change after nine 11? And he just, you know, first he, kind of got this sarcastic laugh and that's all I needed to hear. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, it was, there was no learning from it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the folks that were the most squared away and all it would have taken is for our leadership in New York to reach out to them. Cause I've talked to them mm-hmm. was the FDNY, the fire department in New York, mm-hmm. they had systems and operations in place. Now they may not have been you know perfect because nothing's perfect, but to serve the men and women of the FDNY during and post 9-11, they had their stuff together. Mm -hmm. And we relied on them as well as the NYPD to fulfill our missions, especially if we had a huge UN event. I mean they were instrumental in partnering with us to do our job. And here we are, I mean, the FDNY just decimated. We're trying to support them, you know, NYPD as well. We're trying to support them. Everybody's trying to support each other, but where we really needed it, nobody was asking the really tough questions. And it's unfortunate. Hmm. Um, the, you know, post traumatic stress awareness and education needs to happen in at day one, when you are in the academy, and it needs to be a progression. So you get it in the academy. And then whether it's a yearly block of instruction or a bi-yearly, however, the departments think it, it best fits. That's what needs to happen. And I, and I ask when I speak to chiefs and former chiefs, I, I, I asked the question, I'm like, when you hire somebody, you dump a lot of money into these folks in training Mm -hmm. because you want the best. You want your department to shine. You want your department to be made up of men and women who are dedicated to the job, who 100% know they've got each other's back and that can look to you, the chief, as a leader for them. And yet across the nation, we fail when it comes to post-traumatic stress and mental wellness. Hmm. We fail. We continue. There are very few agencies out there, and I applaud uh, the ones that have it. One of them is very close to me. They have an incredible de- department, and they take it seriously. Why? Because the chief hmm. has been through several traumas that have really he doesn't mind me saying i've really messed him up mm-hmm. and he's open and transparent about how he got back on the horse to be able to lead this department uh effectively met with the department a couple of times and uh, they truly should be modeled in, in my opinion um but you know, yet it here we to, are it
0: goes yeah. back to what Pat Welsh said the other week on on the show he said you know everything rises and falls on leadership you know, when the leader focuses on these issues, then it trickles down to the rank and file. Because it it if, if it's important to the leader, it's important to the rank and file.
1: Absolutely.
0: And if it's not important to the leader, it's not going to be important down the line.
1: Right. And, my, and it begs the question, why would the performance of your department, because having this well goes to performance, why wouldn't you want to have the best performing officers possible Absolutely. it doesn't take much but the right. first thing to be cut what's the first thing to be cut it's training and i know i'm not one of your first <laughs> guest to say that it's training yeah. and uh you know when we cross train with um the military And they have a lot of post traumatic stress programs. And we get together and and we debrief and we talk about the really hard things. What is the number one thing? It's like you got to put it in training. And you've got to train. Law enforcement, they just don't build in enough training in their budget. And, yeah, I know, money, 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 money.
0: (laughs) Ultimately, it saves money, right?
1: In the long run, absolutely.
0: Because it's cheaper to keep people healthy than it is to fix them at the at the back end.
1: Amen. Yeah. So,
0: so speaking of fixing people, <laughs> so you found yourself in your basement surrounding yourself with all the booze you want to drink and you were ready to end it all. What happened? Obviously, you're still with us. Yeah. Thank God.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, as I have the gun to my head, pressing the trigger the first time, Uh, I'm in my basement alone, I know I'm by myself, and a voice from call it upstairs uh, said, Sam, it's not your time. Those are the very clear words that I heard. Hmm. And I put my gun, kind of took it away, and I'm looking around, and again, I know I'm by myself, and I can only imagine it wasn't my husband, he was upstairs sleeping. Nobody else was in my house. There was a force, a something higher, a higher power that spoke. Mm -hmm. And I was in such a deep, dark place that I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to listen. Because in my mind, if it wasn't my time, what the heck was I supposed to do? Because everything was turned upside down. Mm -hmm. And so I just drank some more to the point where I was just ready to to pass out, put the gun back to my head, started squeezing that trigger. And my dog came down the stairs and jumped into my lap and startled me. I mean, really startled me. And I make a joke. It was whispered in my ear at an event. I happened to be speaking at a church. And a lady came up and she whispered as I'm doing a book signing. And she said, you know, Sam, you, you know, you know what your dog was, right? You know, your dog that saved your life. And I said, well, yeah, Solomon, he, he saved my life. And he's like, no, that wasn't your dog. And, I, and I'm looking at her like, what, what do you mean? It wasn't my dog. And she said, what is dog spelled backwards? Okay, <laughs> I, I still I have the chills right now. Yeah. I I at this point I had turned my back on religion because I had kind of gone that route to try and see if I could get again a foothold into making sense of something that just didn't in my world mm-hmm. and it it didn't work out mm-hmm. and so I just was like my dog it was my dog I never I never connected that and mm-hmm. and Now, you know, many, many, many years later, with way more education, uh, I mean, I love to read and, and the ability to get further perspective and reflect and say, hey, you know, um, I do believe in that, that higher power. (laughs) Absolutely. And it was him uh, that spoke to me. For me, it's a him that spoke to me. It sounded like a male voice uh, that night. And he did send my dog and my dog was the embodiment of him bringing everything into perspective. And I, after that happened, I was like, okay, I, I passed out, came to a few hours later, Solomon was curled up right next to me. Like, okay, I got gotcha. you, Not leaving your side here. And I took... You know, I don't know how many, it seemed like five minutes, it was probably more, uh, in the bathroom, just splashing water on my face and staring at my reflection, recognizing my reflection, because PTS had me in its claws so bad. Uh, What preceded the suicide attempt was looking into the mirror and literally not recognizing my own reflection. Scariest thing. And that I had hit bottom.
0: Mm-hmm. Was like, part of that not only the the trauma of the event, but also the trauma of now leaving a profession that you loved. Right. So losing was my
1: identity. That, yeah. yeah. Um, in retrospect, absolutely. I can I can look back on it and say, well, no wonder I didn't recognize myself. I mean, I wasn't myself, and that the the real kind of conundrum with post-traumatic stress um, if you read about resiliency and how to how to build resilient uh, resiliency in yourself a resilient police department whatever, however you want to look at that word is having a concrete social structure intact so that you can reach out well the thing with post-traumatic stress is that, Most people, when you talk to them, they self-isolate. They don't reach out. That's kind of where the stigma, where that kind of whole thing has started. We don't reach out. Hmm. And I think it goes back to that training principle that, hey, you're given these, these incredible skills that very few humans on this earth possess. Figure it out. You figure out everything else. You put together an investigation to the point where you're making the arrest of of the suspect, right? Mm -hmm. You're figuring things out. This post traumatic stress brain, right? It's post traumatic stress brain. You can't figure it out because all of the hormone dumps, the chemicals, your receptors, everything's all over the place. Mm -hmm. So you're constantly in that fight or flight. And your logical thinking brain, because I don't want to get technical, I just want to break it down for folks, it can't engage. Mm -hmm. It it can't. Well, if you can't engage that, how are you supposed to figure it out? Mm. Right? So, yes, I had separated from service. I had lost every ounce of who I was, who Sam was as an agent.
0: At what point did you realize – or? Or what did you do next? What, what was your step, the path to wellness for you?
1: Yeah, you know, I had decided uh, shortly after that I was going to dig my heels in and figure this out. There was an absolute reason why I didn't pull that trigger. And I felt it necessary upon me. I didn't have a plan uh, to just try and figure this thing out. Um, started talking a little bit, and unbeknownst to me, my mom was watching my entire downfall, my journey to the depths of hell, if you will. And one day she came over unannounced and she put a piece of paper in my hand and said, We need you back. Hmm. And I, on that piece of paper, was a name and a number of a very skilled practitioner. Uh, I called her, made an appointment. And, you know, it was that again, another scary moment because here I am sitting on the couch and I'm having to relive and retell what I had been through. And my startle reflex was still really, really high. Uh, As I'm sitting on the couch, she's asking me to go tell her, you know, what happened. And the front door to her office, got slammed, like rattling, the windows slammed, and I just about hit the ceiling. Mm. Okay, so she could see, at that point, it was absolute, you know, I I was desperate, I was like, just tell me what I need to do Mm. to get well again, and we did a very specific uh, therapy protocol called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, Uh, it's really fancy. It's very technical. Basically what it does is uses light and sound a combination of, or leaving one of those out to help get those connections back in the brain so that the the person exposed to trauma is living a life, call it as close to pre-event uh, as possible. So I no longer duck and go to pull a gun um, in Texas. So yeah, I have my concealed carry, <laughs> my license to carry So I no longer, you know, duck down, go to pull my gun. Um, do, I'll say abnormal responses to normal events uh, throughout the day. Uh, the olfactory response uh, tends to still be there. So if I smell burning concrete, um, it it's a reminder of what I've been through, but it doesn't take me back into, you know, that quote unquote flashback where I'm reliving the event that used to happen doesn't happen now. And uh, I, I just feel so blessed and to, to have been able to go through the experience that I did on 9-11, even though it took me to the point where I you know, tried to kill myself and to come out of that so I could bear those scars to help others get through it. And it's, I get to do that with an amazing group of people, uh, retired as well as those still on the job, uh, police officers and firefighters, and it's just as well as practitioners. And it, we go into departments and we tell our stories and we talk about post-traumatic stress and we, I mean, we really dive into it. It's not boring, like education, uh, to where, you, where we're talking statistics and that you're getting a firsthand idea so that you can, in the audience, you're sitting there and the feedback that we've gotten is like, I want to thank you so much. That's me. I'm, I'm where, what you were telling in your story, I'm there and I need your help. And that's why we have an incredible network. It's it's not just us. We have practitioners that it's outside agency, completely confidential. Mm -hmm. You can pick up the phone, get folks help. And if you need to get on a plane to go somewhere, we'll help make that happen. And, uh, and it's, it really is a, uh, just call it coming full circle and I wouldn't have it any other way. I feel like although I'm separated from law enforcement for many years now, that heart of service, it never leaves. So yeah, was it a tough transition? Absolutely. But when I found my purpose and my mission and I get to live that every day, surrounded by a community of amazing people that were all like-minded. That's what it's all about.
0: What do you do today to keep yourself healthy?
1: Oh my gosh, there is these, so these are I'll give you a few of my off-the-couch, that's what I call them, mm-hmm. strategies. Um it that too has been a journey because I never stop learning. I want my toolbox to basically be overflowing with resources, strategies, and tactics that I can lean on um, if, when things get stressful. And let's face it, 2020, is about as stressful as it gets. And I also right. have a teenager, so navigating the school. Are we doing it at home are we doing it in school?
0: I know. I feel your pain. I've been through that. So we're, we're past the teenage years, but, uh, yeah, we had two of them at once.
1: Absolutely, uh, yes. Yeah, so you you full on know, and it is starting my day very purposefully with some breathing exercises, some guided visualization, and it takes five minutes. I don't want people to think, oh God, she's going woo woo on us here. Okay, it's five minutes. Uh, it's scientifically backed. We're pushing it for specifically law enforcement officers. Something we talk about in our workshops and it is amazing um the second thing is you know i talked a little bit about the religious part is really that necessary uh thing to believe and whether it's belief a thousand percent in your mission bringing in the spiritual aspect or or not a spiritual aspect Mm -hmm. okay it's totally up to the person doing these practices it's finding that core belief it's understanding where you fit in the bigger picture of what it is to be on this planet okay i just went totally philosophical on you let me That's break so it down yeah. yeah let me well let me break it down because it is it is vitally important for first responders to understand you are born to do what you do. Okay, absolutely born for what you're doing right now. And if you go back into uh stoicism philosophy the, the even all the way back to the Bible, there is a clear set of instructions for people who have been labeled heroes. Now we don't like that term, but it's us, Mm. okay? And we fit that because we are able to answer the call. We're able to face chaos when others can't. Mm. That's what we're pre-programmed to do on this planet. So for those of you who are watching this, that are questioning my God, should I have ever gotten into this profession? The answer is absolutely yes. You were chosen. You were programmed to do this because most people cannot, most people are not wired to jump in front of a bullet, to run into a burning building. They're just not wired to it, but you are, you answered that call. You live with honor, integrity, courage, commitment. You put whatever term you want on it. You are not broken. You are exactly in the place where you are supposed to be. Again, because you are armed in a way to answer any chaos that comes to you. And, and when I first heard that, it is so powerful and I just, I want people to use that as a stepping point to like heal themselves that you know, really, on,
0: when you can really find your purpose mm-hmm. and your reason for your why, then that just changes everything.
1: Hundred percent.
0: And I, I'm I'm getting ready to go through this course, so a little 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 shout out for my friend, my my virtual friend Don Miller at at StoryBrand. I don't really know Don, mm-hmm. but I know him from his podcast. But he's he just released today. This very day, he released a new series on his Business Made Simple University platform called uh, called Hero on a Mission. And it's discovering your passion, discovering your mission in life. And I'm gonna, it's a four hour class that I'm gonna go through real here real soon. So I know when you find and discover that purpose, and I feel, I've, I, I know mine, mine is to tell stories that matter, to make a difference. When you find that, then your life makes sense and everything starts falling into place now there's still stuff you got to deal with right there's still stuff that you got to focus on and, and fix and, and life <laughs> yeah life happens right you know but it really it helps you wake up in the morning with a reason to get out of bed mm-hmm. and a reason to to uh, you know attack your day and to go into your day because you have a mission you have a purpose
1: yeah, and two more quick things, if I if I could, is physical exercise. You got you got to work out. This gets better when you physically move and you you challenge yourself physically. And the last thing I'll just touch on. There's lots of other ones, but is gratitude. Hmm. I used to people would tell me for years, "Oh, Sam, keep a gratitude ter- journal." My therapist would even like, "Hey, you got to write," and I was just like, "No." No, it was the one thing that I just pushed away. And the more and more I came across, uh, again, I'll go back to scientific studies, um, first responders who had navigated through the crap and gotten themselves well, that is a common thread. So call it gratitude journal, call it just writing down three quick uh, things that you're grateful for that day and try and make them different every day oh my you want to talk about getting up in the morning that'll boom boom it's like gratitude yes let's go grab some there's always 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 something to be grateful for even when you're in the lowest point in your life and you feel like there's just no way out there is something there is a tiny tiny ray of light if you will grab onto that it makes a huge difference
0: I I don't know where this is found, but I think there's scientific evidence to back that up. Yeah. When you have gratitude in your life and you exercise that daily, it does change things.
1: It's part of that building block for resiliency.
0: Yeah. So over the course of the years, as you've developed uh, your opportunities to share with others and to help others, uh, what organizations have you worked with? What what is working out there for people and, and how can they how can people reach out to you if, if they want to have you come and and share or or go through some resiliency training?
1: Sure, sure. Absolutely. So I had mentioned myself and, and officers that I work with as well as practitioners. We formed an organization called A Badge of Honor. And it's a uh, you can look us up on, on the web. It explains uh, the workshops. We can do half day. We can do full day. We can do for your uh, organization or your department, or it can be uh multi uh, agency, um, which we're doing here on December 11th um, in the Dallas Fort Worth area. So if you want for, more information on that, uh, just go to abadgeofhonor.com and you can send me a message through uh, through the website. It's right there. And uh, we have, so like I said, I, I have two letters behind my name that I really don't advertise and it's JD. Uh, yeah, I got my law degree. It's, we heard that in the beginning, but I didn't practice law. So I'm no expert um, in the actual being a practitioner treating post-traumatic stress neither is my, my partner john or jeff but my our other partner john is and not only do we have a huge huge network to help you build your wellness and resiliency it's a network that if you are recognizing you are in immediate need okay, it's akin to you know, civilian call 911. Hey, I need help. You recognize it, but you don't want to say anything to your department. Okay. We got to smash through that stigma. That's what we're, we're that's our mission. Got to smash through it. Reach out. You can reach out again through the website, or you can reach out through a Honor 911 at gmail.com. That's a direct email. And we will put you in touch with, it doesn't matter where you are in the United States, you're listening to this, you're a first responder, you know you need help. We will get you that help that you need. We have a broad network that is coast to coast and everywhere in between. You are not alone. It is absolutely okay not to be okay. We just don't want you to stay
0: there. Hmm. So I want to have a, have one last question. If you could go back to you on the first day on the job as a secret service agent, what would you say to yourself?
1: I would say, Sam, you are a privileged human being to be where you are. There are going to be things that are absolutely going to suck and test you to your core. Remember, you have a family that will always be there for you, no matter what. And don't be afraid to speak up.
0: Hmm. Well, Sam, thank you so much for taking time to uh, talk to me today here on First Responder Friday. It's been a real privilege to to get to know you and to hear more about your story. I think you have a book that uh, you're that, that's available to tell your story. Where can people find that?
1: I do. The book is called The Silent Fall. And you can get it anywhere that books are sold on Amazon. If you want a signed copy from me, uh, you can go onto my website, which is my first name, last name. So samanthahorwitz.com. And uh, hit the book and order it there, tell me how you want it made out. There's a little box that you can fill out and I'll get it in the mail uh, to you. And yes, it chronicles uh, all of 9-11 and beyond. Uh, so how I how I was just at the depths and how I healed. Um, and it's uh, I've been told that it's helped a lot of people. So I'm so grateful for all the positive feedback on it. And Conrad, if I may, I just wanna thank you Um, You doing this first responder Friday uh, and being committed to bringing stories of hope forward and beyond going into PTSD 911, a documentary that absolutely needs to be made. And I mean, we're just pushing out the support. Just know that you have a huge support network and all the first responders out here uh, who want to see that and, and help you get that made so well, thank, thank you thank
0: you so much it's it's a real privilege for me to do this and to tell these stories and to to be able to make a difference hopefully in the lives of first responders and ultimately our communities right because when our first responders are healthy we have healthier safer communities yes we do we all can live in so Sam thank you so much for being here on on the show today and I look forward to uh, meeting you one day in person and perhaps on one of my trips to Texas okay. and uh so we'll be able to uh perhaps meet some time in person so.
1: that sounds fantastic yep.
0: you have been watching first responder friday my name is conrad weaver i'm so glad that you watched the show today hey coming up next week is thanksgiving so we're off we're taking a a break from first responder friday but we'll be back on december 4th with a brand new show and a brand new guest Nick Greco is going to be joining us. He is the president and founder of C3 Education and Research, Inc. He has had multiple positions in his 20-year career in clinical operations, project management, multidisciplinary, if I can say that, training for civilians and law enforcement, as well as diagnosis and assessment. He's going to be here to talk about the holidays and how about how we handle stress and manage that through the holiday season. So be sure to join us on Friday, December 4th. So coming up in January, we have a big announcement. We're going to be changing the name of this podcast show slightly. It's going to be tweaked just slightly, and it's going to have a new name, a new format, and amazing new guests. So be sure to check us out coming up this January for new things happening. We've got a lineup of special guests that we've already booked starting in January. So you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss the new format. You don't want to miss the new new name. And if you've subscribed to our show, don't worry, you'll continue to get our updates as we send them. So thank you for watching. Thank you for being a part of our family. If you are a first responder, thank you for serving your community. Thank you for making a difference in all of our lives and serving our communities to keep us healthy and safe. And please stay well yourself. I'm Conrad Weaver, thank you for watching, have a great day.